across the social sciences, um, they are forced to encounter their own um, unknowingness and to recognize the deep and vast and astonishing expertise of local communities. This, this for me is the, the heart piece of what the marine social sciences could offer conservation and sustainability actors across fields. Hi everyone, thanks for joining us today on Protecting Blue Nature. I'm your host, Aneri Garg, joining you from Vancouver, BC, on the unceded territory of the Squamish, Musqueam, and Tsleil-Waututh First Nations. For communities and cultures that rely on the ocean to support their economy, conservation is not simply a nice or extra thing to consider. It's vital to a sustainable business and an extension, the livelihood of communities. So how can scientists and conservationists work with communities to ensure that local knowledge is integrated into marine conservation planning while also prioritizing the common goal of ocean health in local blue economies? And what can we learn about balancing the needs of multiple ocean users as the blue economy expands? Our guest today is Professor Alexander Moyer from the University of Hawaii's Center for Pacific Island Studies. And we're so excited to dive right into a conversation today discussing how industry, conservationists, and local communities can come together towards blue justice in the ocean decade. Protecting Blue Nature is a podcast from Impact 5, the fifth International Marine Protected Area Congress taking place in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada, from the 3rd to the 9th of February, 2023. I'm working alongside Isabel Grock to explore the themes and streams of Impact 5 through this podcast. Impact 5 will be jointly hosted by the host First Nations, the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh Nations, together with the province of British Columbia, the Government of Canada, the Canadian Parks and Wilderness Society, and the International Union for the Conservation of Nature. We are grateful to the host First Nations for welcoming us into their traditional unceded territories for this Congress. Hi, Alex. Thanks so much for joining us. Could you start by telling us a bit about your journey towards becoming a marine social scientist? My journey towards marine social science really began in an unexpected event in the in the early 2000s as a doctoral student when I happened to be present on Mangareva in the Gambia Islands. These are the southernmost archipelago in French Polynesia. In the early 2000s, persistent crisis in pearl prices. And the Gambia are the center of um, um, one of the most important and valuable pearl um, uh, farming uh, industries in the world. And uh, as a possible response to this crisis, this is around 2001, 2002, this crisis in pearl prices, the Tahitian government created a new Ministry of Pearls, teams of first French expatriate colonial officers, and, and, and then later um, local Tahitian employees of this new Ministry of Pearls were deployed to speak to Mongarevans about how they should engage with their lagoon. And, and, in, and in brief, it became quite clear that from the Mongarevan point of view, uh, a, a cultural community linguistically, historically, politically distinct, Mongarevan was an independent kingdom. From the Mongarevan point of view, these outside um, intrusions on the local use or governments or agency over their lagoon was um, strikingly inappropriate. Leaders in the community, um, the men and women who um, meet at the town hall to, to, to discuss with these um, external agents of the state, often switched into Mongarevan and then discussed what was um, uh, uh, what was their response. I became, uh, 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 as anyone might, fascinated by the cultural dynamics of that response, particularly the the claims in which outsiders' actions um, 
uh, could constitute something like an uh, inappropriate or infelicitous or um, essentially um, um, illegitimate Rahui. And Rahui is a, a traditional practice of resource management, both marine or terrestrial, distributed across all of Polynesia from Hawaii to uh, Aotearoa, New Zealand. We find um, cultural examples of Rahui. Anyway, this framing of, of, of the state as uh, conducting an illegal Rahui, an illegal attempt to, to govern or manage local resources started a path for me that I've stayed on, followed ever since. It sounds like the tide crept up until you were ankle deep in it. That's a, a wonderful metaphor. And that's, I think, exactly right. So the title of this episode is Advancing Conservation in the Blue Economy. And could you tell us a bit about this example that you just spoke of, of pearl farming? How does that fit into the blue economy? And maybe just start by telling us what is the blue economy? The blue economy, um, as typically defined, um, being the full range of ways in which states, communities, or individual actors engage with ocean or marine spaces for economic purposes, including small scale or local acts of uh, sustenance provision or artisanal fisheries, all the way up to very large extractive industries, tuna fishing or um, deep sea mining. The blue economy is really an important phrase, I think, for everyone interested in marine conservation or sustainability to, to, to track because it is an emergent idea attempting to uh, synthesize or consolidate uh, a wide range of activities under a, a single label that, that previously might have been treated as, as quite distinct or separate. So the idea that you might discuss fisheries in the same um, a framework as carbon sequestration in the ocean. So the blue economy in brief is the attempt to frame the widest possible diversity of economic activities in marine spaces and marine worlds across small to large scale sea spaces um, in a single framework. The blue economy is also the idea that economic activities in the ocean have been under-governed, underdeveloped, and that there's an enormous possibility for advancing uh, uh, local to global economic activity and development in marine worlds. As most of us are aware, the greatest portion of the of the world's surface is watery. We live in a blue-green pebble, but blue comes first. This terraqueous globe that we inhabit is mostly a water world. So the blue economy is, among other things, an attempt by um, um, various actors and interests to rethink the ways in which um, from local to uh, national to regional to global across all of these scales that are available for development and the activities possible within them, energy, fisheries, mineral extraction, both um, particularly deep sea mineral extraction and many others um, could be advanced, developed, uh, made more sustainable, made more resilient, um, better captured by capital systems. It's crazy to think about regulating and managing that across all those different scales, but it sounds like a lot of the action really happens at a local scale on the ground or in the water, I guess is what we should say. Um, and the example you provided of pearl farming kind of pointed out some of the challenges and also opportunities to actually engage meaningfully with local indigenous and other local populations. Um, could you tell us a little bit about what are some of those challenges and opportunities to engage meaningfully? The challenge of recognition is the first of the challenges confronting uh, folks who are working in this area, recognizing that in fact, every large scale blue economy activity at the end of the day is actual people in the actual world in actual places conducting actual activities and not just this vast 
um, abstraction by and through magic. Um, so recognition is the first challenge, recognizing that, that, that the blue economy across all of the different dimensions, fisheries, transport, waste management, what um, energy production, that all of the blue economy activities at the end of the day are actual people in actual places um, and that marine spaces are actual places that are near, near or farther from um, local communities or include indigenous communities who are still um, living with uh, and in the, in the, within the framework of uh, the colonial and post-colonial traumas. A second challenge confronting, I think, policymakers, governance and management um, systems over this vast blue economy space. A second challenge is recognizing the agency or sovereignty of local communities over local resources and the ways in which, um, as has been said by any number of people, the ways in which attempts um, attempts to manage nature are um, almost always ill-conceived nature is beyond managing all we can really manage people, right? So taking into account that, that so much, um, so much ink spilled, so much policy crafted, so much work to govern or manage natural resources uh, actually crafted around things that are not ultimately manageable as uh, what we can manage are the activities of agents of, of corporations. We can manage the activities of states and state actors. We can, we can, we can seek to work with or, or manage, um, um, the behaviors or activities of individuals at, at, at every scale, but we can't really manage nature. Nature escapes us. Third potential challenge is the recognizing the limits of capital to produce and capital systems to produce justice or equality or the well-being of the communities that um, it would seem to claim to, to, to want to serve. If the goal of development processes and activities is to enhance human well-being at whatever scale, um, a, a third challenge is going to be identifying what constitutes well-being and whose well-being we're, we, we are most interested in. Many extraction activities, for instance, may indeed maximize the well-being of the capital systems um, that sit on top of the extraction, but not maximize the well-being of local communities. Identifying well-being and the relationship between well-being and capital extraction systems. The blue economy is, at the end of the day, a pretty decent example of 21st century capital enacting itself in water spaces, um, raising questions for many of us about blue grabbing, um, um, reminding us of prior um, capital attempts to seize frontiers and to extract frontiers and displace local communities from 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 ancestral lands and ancestral homes and ancestral rights and so on. Is the blue economy, as you've mentioned, some of the challenges even within that framework? Is it um, is it sort of falling into blue washing almost? Like, what's the danger there, and how how do we funnel projects more towards blue justice? I think the part of the response is obviously skepticism. Um, even if we support development activities or advancing um, local to regional to, 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 to global engagement with blue economies, um, being skeptical about the inherent goodwill of markets or the inherent goodwill of capital extraction regimes is probably um, step one. Um, asking, uh, asking really tough questions about who, key bono, who benefits and, and, and how do they benefit? Right. So an activity that increases the economic well-being of community measurable by something like um, 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 assets, financial or, or, or material assets that seem to be increasing um, is only one dimension of well-being. Are we asking questions about spiritual well-being? for communities where spiritual well-being might be utterly significant or uh, genealogical well-being? for communities where genealogical connections, including connections potentially to entities in nature, are critical components of cultural um, survivance or personhood or identity. Um, asking uh, um, about um, the well-being of communities in terms of rights of access 
to, uh, to resources when conservation or sustainability or other blue economy um, entangled activities um, produce new rules around access. Um, access is itself a kind of well-being. So, uh, you know, I think asking questions about um, who benefits and how and asking questions about well-being, for instance, across dimensions, um, certainly um, are steps, major steps towards um, rethinking um, the blue economy through a, a, a social justice lens. What then is blue justice and how does that fit into the blue economy or how can that provide a direction for enhancing ocean conservation, but doing it in a good way that takes into account all the well-beings of the people you mentioned? I would say for me that blue justice is an attempt to be sensitive to, conscious of, to recognize all the complexity around the multiplicity of, of communities um, that, that border um, marine worlds or, or blue economy spaces. Uh, blue justice would have to include for me uh, taking into account the um, um, historic or ancestral or place-based rights of local communities to um, manage and benefit from local natures. Blue justice would have to include um, um, uh, not only starting at local scales um, in thinking about who benefits and what kinds of benefits across dimensions, but would have to include reaching out from um, from one scale, one local community across scale to others nearby and taking into account that fabric or network of relations. And um, Blue Justice begins with asking the question, what is Blue Justice? Even if we cannot um, find a, um, a really tight and um, succinct definition that all agree on. Sounds complicated and sounds like there's so many users with different values and meanings in watery spaces. Um, so in your own work in Blue Sovereignty, could you give us an example of a time where you saw conservation and an expansion of a local blue economy that was done in a good way, maybe circling back to the pearl farming story you originally started with. Oceanian sovereignty was this sort of uh, recognition we spotted in Haofa's work that uh, that indigenous peoples across Oceania um, had not actually conceived their political worlds as, as ending at the shoreline. That in fact, across Oceania's indigenous and local communities, marine worlds were integral parts of, of the local terrestrial community that islands in some sets extend not only the lagoon spaces and the nearshore spaces, but into the depths of the ocean. So recognizing that Pacific communities or marine communities globally uh, may have historic cultural engagements with and understandings of and sense of stewardship rights over marine spaces. I think we are seeing this play out in at the UN, at the various COP meetings and CBD and, uh, meetings and, and so on, where we see Pacific leaders stepping forward and saying that, um, uh, uh, that they have, um, as Pacific peoples and Pacific states, particularly nuanced and grounded and material engagements with marine spaces, which, um, um, which uh, uh, put them in a place of stewardship and agency over those conversations. In the case of that pearl farming story, the idea that outsiders would come in and, and, and specify um, um, what rules would govern how folks access or move through waters, the answer is uh, somewhere around um, working together or collaborating across political spheres to recognize the local enactments of agency and rights over marine use um, um, in, con in, in consultation and collaboration with um, external actors who may, who may also see themselves as having something to say like the state. 
How might some of the lessons that you learned through that process or the community learned through that process apply, for example, in other coastal communities? And my mind goes to in Canada, Impact 5 is coming up in Vancouver, a coastal city in British Columbia with, um, well, current day British Columbia with a diversity of coastal indigenous groups. So yeah, how, what, what can we learn from that kind of blue sovereignty work? One of the most, um, um, exciting things happening is is the sort of the bubbling up or effervescence the the explosion of local stewards uh um across indigenous worlds and local communities uh, including non-indigenous communities coming out of homes coming out of neighborhoods they've been largely ignored by conservation and sustainability practitioners and they have been wildly absent from the natural science literature for most of the time that we could uh, seek to discuss more recently um the tide is changing and i think this is the number one lesson for me I love that you brought up questioning who is an expert and acknowledging the deep level of expertise in Indigenous and local communities. Could you tell us more about that? You know, one of the things that I think has been missing from so many conversations is the kind of experience that many social scientists have when they start um, when they start their research. Um, they discover that they are not the expert. That in fact, the youngest the youngest child who can speak in the community has more expertise on almost any topic you could want to discuss, and that the deeper the well of ignorance or naivete or unknowingness of the PhD, of the doctor, of the outsider scientist, right? So this is oddly enough encourages a kind of humility or modesty among many many social scientists. Um, not always economists, but among many social scientists across the social sciences, um, they are forced to encounter their own um, unknowingness and to recognize the deep and vast and astonishing expertise of local communities. This, this for me, is the, the heart piece of what the marine social sciences could offer conservation and sustainability actors across fields. It seems like this is something also missing from natural sciences. And you teach marine social science to future marine scientists. What are some of the core values or directions that you want to see engaged in natural sciences? We might want to train in a marine biology program, for instance, needs to encounter is this is this sense of, of modesty when it comes to local knowledge, recognizing that an aunt or an uncle or a colleague or even a young person in a community, um, particularly in, in, in communities um, um, which are living close to or with within marine spaces. A second lesson, recognize the presence of people in almost anything you could want to talk about. Um, deep sea mining, right? So benthic or abyssal spaces are not disconnected from local communities, even if they are um, thousands of hundreds or thousands of meters uh, undersea. A third of the, of the sort of the major lessons we want to um, make sure we, I think, engage is, is this idea of, of the plurality of topics the plurality of topics that someone might want to engage if they are taking people into account, that people are not just their economic functions, right? And that if, even if we're discussing the point of intersection between a blue economy and a marine biologist or a blue economy and a marine um, scientist across uh, across various dimensions, the human space is, is not a narrow field of engagement, that it's a broad space. There are many social sciences that might be relevant to advancing their marine biology or their conservation science, their sustainability science or their environmental science. That's actually a very challenging idea to communicate. Um, thankfully, the literature is growing. How does title thinking apply in the blue economy? And could you give us an example of what that looks like? So title thinking is a, is a phrase that my colleague Paul Darcy uh, introduced to me. 
uh, to capture these um, rather significant or profound shifts in um, uh, uh, local communities across Oceania and possibly globally, and how the, the ocean relevance, health, well-being, linkages between the uh, marine world and terrestrial worlds, between marine worlds and local communities, how shifts in the perception of these linkages, how shifts in conception or understanding these linkages, and sh how shifts in feeling about these linkages have become visible in indigenous and local communities uh, across this region and, and, and maybe everywhere. So tidal thinking is a phrase that captures that sense of, of, of something shifting in perception, conception, and feeling much less understanding and responsive behavior. Here's an example. Uh, sustainable sea transport, marine transport um, has to shift. It is one of the largest carbon polluting um, uh, industries on the planet. Uh, it's enormously uh, entangled with food security and um, just everyday experience for families um, on continents all around water worlds, to say nothing of people who live in um, island worlds. Marine transport is a central facet of, of, of blue economies among all of the different blue economy sectors, fisheries, deep sea mining, efforts of local Pacific communities, indigenous communities across Oceania to re-energize and revitalize or freshly vitalize traditional sailing across the region have any lessons whatsoever for our marine um, uh, transportation experts. Could folks interested in sustainable sea transport learn anything from those local community groups who are rebuilding traditional Marshallese canoes? Or are there lessons that can be learned about how to organize society around uh, transportation regimes on a different temporality? that use sustainable materials, but that still achieve the food security and um, um, development goals or well-being goals of any NEC transport regime? The answer is obviously absolutely yes. But who's doing that work? Well, the answer is a few people are starting to. Folks like Joe Gens at UH Hilo and, and others are beginning to explore these points of connection between sustainable sea transport and this high-tech domain and these lessons from cultural anthropology on traditional oceanic navigation. If I may ask, on a personal level, how do you find your own connection to the ocean or to the water around you in a large ocean state? Um, and how does that feed into your own motivation and work? One of the spaces he identified was around uh, local ia. Um, local ia are fish ponds, traditional fish ponds here in Hawaii. They uh, were disestablished over the course of the American colonial expansion into Hawaii and have um, uh, have been um, largely uh, dismantled. But once upon the time, um, these traditional fish ponds surrounded all the, they um, surrounded, literally, you could find them around every coastline on every one of the major Hawaiian islands. And they sustained an enormous population um, with an extremely capacious and sustainable local fishery um, after the American colonial occupation of Hawaii, um, um, the fish ponds were disestablished. And um, over the last decades, local community groups, indigenous and non-indigenous persons often working together, um, have come together to, to begin to restore fish ponds on almost every major Hawaiian island has a plurality of groups um, where young people like my son or our family could go and volunteer once a month or however often there are local um, a a heroes absolute titans um, who are um, engaged daily or weekly in these restoration projects. And um, for me, you know, um, giving time in a modest way um, or seeing seeing my son give time 
um, it changed my relationship to the ocean. Was there anything final you wanted to add that we didn't touch on? One of the most exciting things happening anywhere in the social sciences is the is is this um, this tidal rise of engagement with 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 ocean spaces. We saw this happen more broadly with climate and environment over the last decades, and um, ocean was slow. It, to be embraced by social science, scientists. For those colleagues in the natural sciences who are largely going to make up the attendees at Impact 5 and who are largely going to be responsible for helping navigate policy and decision-making around marine protected areas in, in Oceania, in the Mediterranean, in the Atlantic, right? Attending to the potential to infuse your work with a plurality of social sciences to break up and rethink the very effective tools that have long been um, recognized out of um, um, economics and that one branch of the social sciences, I, I think is an opportunity that needs to be seized. And alongside that, recognizing the arrival of indigenous scientists and indigenous scholars and activists who may, may not hold a PhD, but who are expertise holders um, as key agents of advancing our conversations. Um, the time is now. I love that. I mean, water doesn't know borders and maybe we need to take that lesson and break down the borders that we've put up between social scientists, natural science, who's an expert. So thank you so much for that comment and for joining us today. Appreciate all the lessons and learnings and looking forward to seeing you at Impact 5, I hope. I, I'd absolutely be there. Anyway, it's such a pleasure to speak. If you'd like to learn more about the topics discussed on protecting blue nature, please visit www.impact5.ca or follow us on social media at Impact 5 Canada. That's I-M-P-A-C-5 Canada. If you are inspired by this conversation today, consider registering to attend Impact 5 next February in Vancouver, Canada. And check out the other episodes of Protecting Blue Nature wherever you listen to your podcasts. Please see the show notes for this episode's transcript available in both French and English, as well as more resources on this topic.